0: I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos.
1: I didn't know what my opinion was on things because... I was never really required to formulate one. I think what happens with a lot of Asian women is they grow up inheriting their opinions and beliefs.
0: It's time we heard the voices of real South Asian women, not just those we see in Bollywood or in mainstream Western media. It's time we had a real
1: voice, a loud and proud and strong voice. I think that other cultures need to know the truth rather than what they read or what they perceive or what they watch on TV.
0: I've invited some incredible women to join me around my virtual kitchen table and for the world to rights. Today on Masala Podcast, we start season two with a very special guest. She's literally the funniest woman that I know. Shazia Mirza. Shazia is a famous comedian and writer. She's been on so many shows. Jonathan Ross, Celebrity Island with Bear Grills. Her latest show, Coconut, will be on tour again in 2021. Shazia travels all over the world doing stand-up comedy. But she tells me she can also cook and clean like a good Indian woman. I was thinking we'd start by, tell me some of the ways people have mispronounced your name. And I'm, when I say people, I think I mean white people who don't know how to pronounce Asian names.
1: I think my name is very easy to say, very easy to spell. It is written as it is spelt and it is written as it is said, Shazia Mirza. But I have been called so many things over the years. I was once introduced on stage as Shaver Minzad. Not only has that person got all the letters mixed up, they added new ones. They made, they gave me a new name, Shaver Minzad. That is how I was introduced once on stage at the comedy store and all the other comedians could not stop laughing. They thought it was just atrocious. I have been called, um, Mira Sayal. <laughs> I was stopped at Chicago airport once and asked if I was Malala and <laughs> it's not, not even a joke. I uh, Are you Malala? Oh, I know who you are. You're Malala. No, I'm not Malala. And then he said, but do you know Malala? I said, no, I don't. I don't know her. Never met her. (laughs) And I was once on a beach in St. Lucia in the Caribbean and a white woman came up to me. She went, oh my God, I can't believe it's you. And I thought, oh my God, somebody has Recognised me on the beach in St Lucia. I mean, on holiday, and I just stood there, and she went, "Oh my God, you're my GP." What? And I just, you are, you're my GP. Oh my God, that is not even my- funny. <laughs> oh, that's just so, you know, surreal. Now I know, I know that we're all laughing at this, and this is funny, and you know, obviously, I put these things in my act because they are funny. They are. But I think um, you know, the deeper meaning of this, and the broader context of this, is that Asian women we all look the same, we are all the same person. And if there's one of us in the media, then we're all that person. We're all Mira Sayal, And that's the only Asian woman that exists and the only Asian woman that you know and can relate to. They are shocked and horrified and really um kind of mortified when I say, uh, no, actually I'm a comedian. And they go, oh my God, yeah, 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 of course, of course, I, I know who you are, <laughs> I know who you are you can't recognize me as an individual. You call me Miraceal, who looks very different to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but to a lot of people, so I think it's a subconscious thing. I really don't think it's a deliberate thing. But to a lot of people, that is their only recognizable person that they've known in their life. And I don't think it's racist. I really don't. I think it is a subconscious thing. But as we all know, if we don't talk about it and if we don't address it, it does become racism. Exactly.
0: And I think all the more reason to have more South Asian women doing more things.
1: To be on a holiday in St. Lucia on a beach, in my bikini, by the way, Sangeeta, and to be mistaken for your GP... I just thought that's just a step too far, really. That's a whole other level. It's
0: just too much. This makes me feel better because I had a boss who called me Sanjita for four years. Despite me pr- correcting her, I corrected her about six times in those four years. And then I just gave up. I said, if you can't be asked to pronounce my name, Sanjita, could I speak to you for a minute? I'm like, I'm not Sanjita, I'm Sangeeta. There's a the difference.
1: Uh, she just couldn't be bothered. I think... I think a lot of times we've been very polite for a long time. Asian women in general have been very polite for a long time. We are very polite women. That's how we've been brought up. That's how we behave. And I think we've reached a point now uh, where we are really angry and we are really um saying what we really think and really expressing ourselves like we haven't done before because we've had enough. And it's not just the name thing. I mean, obviously, it, it goes so much bigger than that. But the name thing is just one thing. Is that in the past, we've been polite and we haven't corrected people. I haven't corrected people. You know, I've I've let them just call me what they wanted. And now I think it's different. I definitely
0: think it is. And I think getting angry is sometimes a good thing, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, you have yeah. to get angry. Yeah. Before people get up and do something about it,
0: a South Asian woman, what's she all about? I was told that I was only as good as the man who married me. I was taught to be quiet, to never question anything. I was told to enter a room quietly. To never make a fuss. Girls should be seen, not heard, I was told. And I was also told never, ever to be angry, to wear a smile, even when I was raging inside. What does it mean to be a South Asian woman today? Does it mean a constant balancing act between the old ways and the new world that we inhabit? Trying to juggle between who we're told we should be and who we really are deep inside. Should we talk about how was young Shazia, maybe aged eight mm. or 10, growing up in Birmingham? Um, I know you had a fairly strict upbringing like I did and a lot of South Asian women that I know. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit about that?
1: I think it's, I think it's very common. Um, and I think um, when white people view us uh, they view us, not just white people actually, um, black people and other cultures view Asian, Pakistani, Indian women. They view us all as having the same upbringing, which is not true that we have the same upbringing, but we definitely have similarities in that often, broadly speaking, we are brought up very strict and polite and subservient and dutiful, and that, yes, there is a lot of emphasis on marriage, that everything you do in your life as a girl is to be a good wife. That is what you're going to be at the end of the day. So how you look, how you cook, how you are educated, how you dress, and how you speak to people uh, from a young age, two, three, four, five, six, seven years old, it all has to be right so that when you reach your early 20s or even younger than that, then you're going to get a good husband because you are a good Asian woman. And I think that was exactly for me, you know, I was brought up in Birmingham where it has, a Birmingham has everything, you know, has every culture, every religion, every language is spoken. I mean, you know, I was brought up, I uh, had Sikh friends, Hindu friends. Um, I went to school. I had a lot of Irish friends, Asian friends, Jamaican friends, because Birmingham has that, you know, I had loads of immigrants come over in the sixties and seventies. And there was a lot of Afro-Caribbeans, a lot of Irish, Ugandan, you know, Jewish. So I knew everybody of every kind of race. And I think that's a privilege that you have growing up in that kind of environment because it's just normal to me to know those people to see those people to hear those languages and my family was strict my, my i have got three brothers you know i w- it was a very um masculine household uh, my father is a pakistani father, came from Pakistan in the 70s, a total dictator, a very strong man, very macho. Three brothers, they were brought up in the same way to be men, 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 men. You know, you've got to be masculine and the women have got to be feminine. But you know, I'm brought up in a house with four men, domineering strong men. Obviously, I was going to be a strong woman. It just was going to be that way is that I would have to stand up for myself. I would have to speak up for myself. And I, I didn't, you know, growing up, I didn't have a voice because it was drowned out by the other voices in the house, by the very uh, strong father figure and three masculine brothers. So as a woman, I didn't have much of a voice. You know, my opinions didn't matter that much. I was never asked, for instance, what do you, Shazia, what do you think of this? That was never asked. So, you know, if there was a program on TV, nobody would ever say, Shazia, what do you think of that? Do you think that's funny? No, I, I was never asked my opinion and therefore I didn't know how to give it and I didn't know what my opinion was on things because I was never really required to formulate one. So for a long time, and I think what happens with a lot of Asian women is they grow up inheriting their opinions and beliefs. And they inherit them from their parents and from their culture and their society. And it isn't until they grow up and leave home that they realize, actually, I don't think those things. I don't believe those things. I don't think it should be that way. Um, But you don't know that for a long time. You know, it wasn't, Till I'd gone to university, I did a couple of degrees, and I started travelling the world, and I became a comedian. It wasn't really till I became a comedian that I realised, actually, everything I've brought been brought up with. I don't really believe that. I don't think that. Those are my parents' views, and I inherited them without questioning them. But now I don't think those things. I don't believe those things. You know, I don't have those views towards certain groups of people. I don't. But but no but but you can only get that from being educated i suppose was it quite a difficult transition because i think
0: within our culture and families so much of that sense of belonging and culture comes from feeling a part of a community and a family and then sometimes when we form opinions that are different from that that's quite hard you know it has was for me so i wondered if it was anything like that for you
1: yeah, it is because you feel guilty. You feel like you're a traitor. You feel like you've let people down. You feel that you are not Asian enough or that you're not Asian anymore. Uh, people accuse you of being a coconut, uh, being too white, uh, being too uh, full of yourself, you know, being a kind of a disappointment to the culture simply because you think a different way. I think that. You know, being an Asian woman, there is a sense of guilt that you never get rid of in your life. I think you will always carry that guilt for as long as you live, that you were in some way not good enough, not Asian enough, not dutiful enough. You didn't marry the right person. You didn't do the right career. And then even my friends who did have arranged marriages and did get married and do the supposedly right thing, they still feel guilty and they wish that they had lived another life where they did do their own thing. I think that as a Asian woman, there's a burden that you carry that that you can't really explain really, but it's, it's, it's about being brought up in two cultures. That It's very hard to balance that. Absolutely. And even someone like me, I was brought up in India.
0: It's so difficult to then transition from kind of my own family's expectations of me and then say, actually, I don't agree with all of the stuff you're saying. And I'm going to go do something completely different because then you lose the, there is a choice. And there it's a hard choice, I think, for a lot of women. I think I loved what you said earlier. It's this. It's always this kind of almost baggage we have to carry. Every single one of us that doesn't conform. And even the people who conform are thinking, oh my God, what if I hadn't? So it's this weight
1: I think we carry. And I think there's a part of us that always conforms. like. I'm a stand-up comedian. I mean, I did. I mean, it's like being a prostitute to a lot of people in my, in our, in our culture. But I, I became a stand-up comedian. Uh, I was, I was the first Muslim female stand-up in Britain. So I didn't have anybody to compare to, nobody, nobody to ask advice from, nobody to kind of emulate. I didn't see anybody like me on TV. I was out there on my own, didn't know whether I was doing right or wrong, didn't have any support. And then I I do this thing and and I think when you go out on your own in any way, whether it's the job you do, the man you marry, um, the life that you live, once you do one thing in one area, I think you have to live your entire life in that same kind of way. So I became a comedian. I can't now go back and have an arranged marriage to a man in Pakistan and and live a dutiful Muslim life because I'm a stand-up comedian. I've broken out. So I now have to live my life in every other area in the same way because that's what I believe in. That's how I've stepped out on my own. And that's really scary for a lot of women to do. And I, and I realize and I understand why there are no other Muslim women doing stand-up in Britain before me, and now there's only three of us, why there are so few Asian women in the arts, why there are so few Asian women in sport, or any of these areas that we don't see Asian women in, and therefore when you're on a beach, uh, everybody thinks that you're their GP. It's because we're not out there. And I understand why. You know, It goes back a long way. But once you've lived your life out there in one area i think you have to live your life in every area like that and i think you often feel guilty about that and there's a part of me that is still really subservient like there's still a part of me that wants to get my chapatis round and there is still a part of me that you know when i get married i will cook for my husband and i will wash his clothes and i will look after him because that's What I know—that's innate in me—that whoever my husband is, I will—I will look after him and I will care for him, and I will be the good Asian wife. Um, Even though I'm a stand-up comedian, there's always a part of you that is dutiful because you you feel that's your obligation, and I don't think you can get rid of that. You can't. And the thing is, you know, I find myself doing some some very
0: Indian things. I got a friend over this weekend. And I kept cooking and I was like, I was making lunch, I was making breakfast, I was making dinner, I was washing the dishes and then I'm like, okay, what am I doing here, you know, but it's the thing we've grown up with because that's what my mum did, you know, like anybody came
1: home, you fed them and you fed them and you fed them again. It's such an Asian thing. And it's it's such an Asian thing for women that they feel that they they must be in the kitchen and they must serve everybody and look after them. And I, I do, I, I feel that, and I, I don't know how to stop it. Like, <laughs> if I, if I see, if I feel like there's an, there's an old man who's sick or something, I feel it was, it's my obligation to go and look after him, to take food round to his house. <laughs> Whether I know whether I know him or not, <laughs> A strange old guy. <laughs> you know <laughs> that kind that it's kind true. of thing, and it's it's just something that is innate in us. Let's talk about sex. Yes, let's, let's talk about love and sex. Nobody talks um, about sex more than Asian women. Um, Asian women talk about sex. I, I remember going to the mosque once, and I met this woman. I'd never met her before. And um, she said to me, you know, I really shouldn't be here because I've just had sex and uh, I didn't have time to wash. I'd never met this woman before. And we're standing just about to go into the mosque for Friday prayers. I really shouldn't be here. I've just had sex. I mean, I mean, you just, I never even heard that in a nightclub. My Muslim friends who are very religious wear hijab, jilbab, niqab, covered head to toe. The amount they talk about sex I mean, they should be banned from public life because they are all, they talk about sex in the supermarket, they're talking about sex, go around to their house, they're talking about sex all the time. And I don't know if it comes from repression, that when we were growing up, we weren't allowed to talk about it, or we're not allowed to talk about it now, because we don't do it, do we, Sangeeta, we don't do it. No, we really don't talk about sex. It's all hush, hush and chi-chi. We don't
0: don't do it. We don't actually do it. We are so... We pretend like nobody's ever had sex and our parents kind of magically produced us. We don't see it anywhere. Like growing up, like in Bollywood, you know, I grew up in India. So everything was Bollywood. is the two flowers kissing. That's all you saw. So I was like, why are these two flowers kissing? And then there's magically it's a baby Nine months later.
1: And nobody has sex till their wedding night. You know, that's what they all say. Ashwariya Rai, Shushmita Sen, and all these Miss Worlds. And, oh, no, 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 we are, no, we don't, we don't do it. Um, it and everybody goes, and everybody gets on board and goes, yeah, okay, we believe you. Like, and <laughs> the whole, the whole, and the whole country is on board with this about how a woman <laughs> exactly. needs to be projected, and then, yeah. somebody like Priyanka Chopra comes along, and everybody goes, "What the fuck are you doing? Why you've got no clothes on marrying this little boy in Hollywood? That's not how t- that's not how it's meant to go because nobody this is a recent thing. nobody does nobody kind of did this before, did they?"
0: We lived to watch Bollywood films when I was a young girl. Now most Bollywood films in the 70s and 80s had a similar sort of messaging for women. I remember this film called Julie. Julie, the heroine of the film, she wore these gorgeous 70s dresses. Then Julie had sex with her brother's friend. Obviously, she got pregnant and her life was ruined. There's another film from the same era called Aradhana, which has this really sexy song Shot in the rain, she's wearing this soaking wet sari. Once again, the heroine has sex once, just one time. Boom, she's pregnant. Her life is over. She just weeps and cries for the rest of the film. So the messaging was pretty consistent. Obviously, no one mentioned contraception. As young women just awakening to the idea of sexual pleasure, 70s and 80s Bollywood was the best contraception you could think of. Do you remember what, um, you know, when you're choosing partners or husbands, do you remember what messaging you got when you were growing
1: up from your parents, the kind of person? I mean, this is going to sound horrific to white people, but I think that other cultures um, need to know the truth rather than what they read or what they perceive or what they watch on TV. I think, you know, especially now, they need to know the truth and it needs to come from our own People and our own community and our own women. You know, I was brought up very typically, you know, I was never allowed to go out with boys and I never did because I was so scared of what would happen to me if I did. I know we hear about honor killings and girls getting killed for going out with black guys and white guys and all of this. When I was growing up in Birmingham in the 80s, there was no such thing as honor killings. That is a thing of recent times that label honor killings, but it was going on then. It just wasn't labeled as honor killings. Now there is a name uh, for it. There is a law against it. You know, there have people, people have been imprisoned because of it. But when I was growing up, all that happened was is if you were caught as a nation girl going out with a black guy or a white guy, you would either be sent back to Pakistan or India to get married because you brought shame on the family, or you would mysteriously disappear, or something would happen to you. And so I was I was always too scared to do anything with anybody. Also I went to an all girls school. But, you know, I went on school trips and, you know, I could have done something with a boy if I really wanted to. I was just too scared. It was my greatest fear that I would be sent to Pakistan to marry a man who was 30 years older than me in some village in the middle of nowhere, and that would be the end of my life. That was my greatest, greatest fear in my life. And I I think I was scared then to go out with a boy then, and I became so scared for so many years afterwards. Um, Even though I was living my own life then, I went to university, I was living away from home, I had my own life i think that that affects you anything that happens in your childhood will always that is traumatic will always affect you for the rest of your life you just have to cope with it in a different way but i think that for me you know having the fear of having to marry somebody at such a young age oh my god it was so much it was such a fearful thing for me and I always then for me, what was important was my freedom and fighting for my freedom to live my life how I wanted, to do what I wanted, to go out with who I wanted without guilt, without shame. And I, I was always very selective afterwards. I thought, I'm going to go out with whoever I want. I'm going to marry who I want. And it has to be on my own terms. And I have to be really, has to make me really happy. And, I, and the biggest thing for me was that I didn't want to feel like I was in a prison of any kind. And, and that feeling of being a prisoner came from the fear of maybe having to marry somebody as, when I was really, really young, um, who was a lot older than me. I just didn't want to do that. It's so important what you just said there about the
0: things, the traumas in our childhood carrying through for the rest of our lives. So, even if the messaging is so strong from our families that if you do this, these are the consequences, that they don't even have to be there with us when we're, I don't know, in college and we've got all this freedom, we're not going to do that because you hear that voice so strongly, you know, in your head. Uh, You know, for me, it was like my mom would always say, if you get pregnant, you know, if you go out and you do this and you're going to get pregnant and that's the end of your life. And, you know, you know, you'll be on your own. You'll be on the streets, and that's stopped me from having sex with anybody because I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that.
1: The same thing happened to me. Was that I think it was it was a, a total. It was a characteristic of Asian parents that their daughter was going to get pregnant. That that was the biggest thing. And my parents used to say that to me all the time. You can't. I remember when I first started my periods, and my mum said, right now, you can't go out anywhere unsupervised you can't um, talk to any boys or you just can't go out. I remember saying you just can't go out now because you've started your periods and you could get pregnant. I mean, I thought that if I just went on the street and a, a boy walked past me, then I would get pregnant. I had I, It would have been the immaculate Misconception because I had no idea what this meant. I was not going to sleep with anybody, but they, that was the greatest fear. You're going to get pregnant. How was I going to get pregnant unless I had sex with them? But it made it sound like if I went anywhere near a boy, I was going to get pregnant. So really, it was the same in my house. Asian women were practicing social distancing way back, way back. I mean, we it, we invented it. So when these people are going around now, social distancing, I mean, this is not a new thing. Asian women invented this 50 years ago. Again, we never get credit for the things that we invent. Shazia, thank
0: you so much for being on the sala Podcast. Thank you for having you me. You are incredible. I've been such a fan. Seriously, oh, you are literally the funniest <laughs> woman in the world. Oh, Every time I've come to your gig, and I've come to a lot of them over these last <laughs> two years, I think. You don't even have to do the punchline. I'm already what, laughing. What,
1: really, am I doing something stupid? Just no. You just
0: funny. Am I? You just have that funny gene. I'm the opposite of that woman you met, where she's saying, "I don't find things funny." I find you really, really funny. <laughs> you're hilarious. <laughs> That's and good. also you've got this ability to kind of get under the nub of something and you know which is what good comedy is yeah, I know I'm yeah. telling that to a comedian yeah. you take culture and you can sort of gently make fun of it and that's such a such an astonishing skill
1: I absolutely love what you do Oh thank you thank um, you Tom well I love your podcast that's why I agreed to be on it I think it's very ne- I oh, think it's very very, very necessary to have a voice from our, our perspective Especially now, we we need that, um, not just for ourselves, but to educate other people um, so that they know. I mean, they don't know what they don't know. Let's tell them things that they they don't know, you know? If you've been affected by
0: anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Belai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be, Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created by me, Sangeeta Pillai. Produced by Hannah Walker Brown. Opening music by Sunny Robertson.